Before we start the show, we have a special announcement. There are some things that just aren't done, such as drinking Dom Perignon 53 above the temperature of 38 degrees, listening to the Beatles without earmuffs, or being seen in public without our What Does Vargas Do t-shirt. That's right, we've launched our own store over at redbubble.com. Just go to the website and search for Spy Hards. Grab yourself a Vargas shirt, making sure it's the right size, or you might just feel a stiffness coming on in the shoulder. Scott, I think they get the point. My bad. So keep the spy hards end up, check out the store and cam, roll the episode. Boom. Hello and welcome to Spy Hards Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Um, Yes, uh... That is a fugitive reference for everyone out there, and um, that will be a movie I'll be touching back on throughout the course of this review. (laughs) Yeah, I I have several notes about that film too. But uh, before we get into that, I think joining us in the septic tank hidden in the garage underneath the truck, we have our first returning guest. Seriously? First returning guest? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wild to me. Uh, we, we had self Just sorry cycling through that. the Rolodex. Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> really scratching the barrel on this one. That's, uh, yeah. I mean, you guys said it was a last-minute recording. I, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> you caught me at the right level of depression to put myself through two Olivia <laughs> Megatana movies. Well, that's the perfect time to have you. But uh, joining us for the second time, it is Nathan from our hashtag Spy Bros, the Mission Impotable podcast. Yeah, guys, it's, uh, I'm glad you guys uh, scraped the bottom of the barrel and found me underneath the fucking ravine or whatever he jumps into <laughs> underneath that. You came on before and tackled the Bourne Ultimatum, so we thought, you know, this is the third entry in a franchise, and you got to tackle a great one. The, the and... pioneer shaky cam. Yeah, uh, yeah. Cinema <laughs> Verite, that could be your middle name from now on. Oh, God. I like Alexander. I'll stick it with that. But hey, yeah. Glad to be halved by y'all. <laughs> Is that work? <laughs> I don't know that that works. Come on, guys. We're t- this is a loopy recording. It should That's be. That's fine. This is this where is the, we're going to go. We're talking about talk 3N. Come on. Uh, well, we may have spoiled it with that intro cam, but what are we tackling this week? We are tackling take three, <laughs> or as most people per- might uh, refer to it, taken three, the Third entry, surprise, of the Brian Mills saga. And the final one, question mark. I don't even think it's a question mark. It's been (laughs) how many years? I don't think they're bringing him out. He's still making films like this. He's still making films like this. Never say never. Yeah, I mean, the dude's got to do what he's got to do. I mean, his wife died and uh, he lends credibility to every single one of them. He manages to get through this one pretty like clean. We could get like the, um, you know, John Rambo version of the Taken film. We could get Oof. Brian Mills, the movie. 
what does he have to revisit? <laughs> Haven't we already said all we needed to say in the Taken saga? I might have a couple of pitches later on for what we could have as a fourth, but I'll, I'll save that. Oh, I have a couple pitches too on the ready. Okay, well, well I'll, I'll write this down as a note for later. We can we can uh, take him four away. But I, I, I do just want to ask you, Nathan, before we tackle Taken 3, do you have any experiences with Taken 1 and 2? Uh, so... You guys are monsters and had me watch the other two uh, Taken films within a <laughs> period of like, no, I took it on. Uh, but I remember really liking the first Taken movie when it came out. Uh, 2008 to 2009 was like a really, really big period of me watching like everything that was out. And I remember all the trailers and everything. And there is like in your head the worst version of what a Taken movie is, which inexplicably became the later two Taken movies. <laughs> but uh, you have like this vision of like a, a racist Death Wish sequel. And it really isn't that. It's more of like a badass 60s era revenge movie. Uh, if it were 1968, you know, you'd have Michael Caine playing uh, Brian Mills. But instead you have like a very like no bullshit, tight, breathless thriller. I was actually shocked. I thought that... Uh, the first movie would be like heavier on the like trafficking. That's at least what I remembered. But what I will, I'm not sure if you guys talked about this with the first one, because I haven't listened to the episode. What I will applaud that movie for is that it shows you just enough to make you feel uncomfortable and didn't feel too exploitive, which is uh, insane for a movie of its type, especially hearing that on paper. You're just like, Oh God. But uh, yeah, no, and, and Neeson's incredible. I mean, this movie changes his entire career. Yeah, for the better, question mark? Uh, it, it's tough. I think for the better mentally for him, uh, a lot of his movies are just inherently going to become undervalued. But I mean, the dude can still like lead a movie that will open fine, which is saying more than what he was previously in his life. Uh, and there are a lot of performances that he's given in the past couple of years that have been like at least in my short list for best actor of the year i always think about the gray which seemed like it was going to be a liam neeson movie it was more like a short story on death so yeah i i don't know i i wouldn't say for the better or for the worse i'd say it sort of sizes up to be like denzel washington's later half of his career but uh neeson never really had the highs that washington had yeah no that's very true yeah but you know we're we're talking uh talking the later Oliver uh, Megaton ones if you guys want me to say how I felt about Taken 2 quickly uh please please go, go nuts it. uh it's all right like I watched it it was incompetently made it uh I do like the reversal that they do though a little bit like the the worst thing about the Taken sequels is that uh, okay there's way worse things but one of the worst things about the Taken sequels is that the first one is such a cut and dry situation that happens to you once in your life and brings back this part of yourself that you've left long dormant and then like all the other ones are like you want to see it happen two more times and it's just not nearly as interesting I would I feel like the most interesting stuff of the movie was like all the things that they did with Maggie Grace like finding where they are I thought that was a cool reversal but at the end of the day, she ends up becoming a damsel in distress that Liam Neeson ends up saving despite having trained for like most of the movie. It, it seemed like it was pitching me a more interesting movie than what we got. But you guys were right on the chat that we had beforehand, the sonar with the car. Cool. 
I really dug that, even though that explosion looked like ass. <laughs> now, you've referenced Olivier Megaton, the director of Taken 2. I'm just curious. Um, we, we're not going to touch yet on his work on Taken 3, but what did you think of the transition from Pierre Morel doing the first one to Megaton doing the second? Oh, my God, dude. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen a shakier hand of transition. Like, I, I don't know uh, <laughs> Pierre Morel, right? Yeah. I, I'm not as familiar with most of his works, but what uh, what I should have probably touched on earlier, but I'll touch on right now with uh, the first taken is that for all the shaky cam, and we talked about this in the Bourne movies, you really don't lose geography in there. Uh, it doesn't feel like you're looking out the window and the entire setting changes. And <laughs> Olivia Megaton might be the king of the cuts. I've never seen somebody cut around so much, so inexplicably. Uh, I, I, I'll bring it up because it happens in Taken 3, but I believe it, it it's not a big moment. But I believe it kind of speaks to his directing style and the changeover. There's a scene where Forrest Whitaker eats a bagel in this movie and he just picks it up out of the bag, puts it to his mouth and eats it. And they cut from 14 different angles in a span of 13 seconds or not even 13 seconds, like two seconds. I was, uh, I almost feel like I'm having a seizure when I'm watching his movies. I will say uh, the second one is more competently made than the third one for sure. Uh, and, and something good about the second one, you know, how Roger Ebert said, no movie, no good movie is long enough and no, uh, bad movies too short. That movie was like the perfect length for a bad movie. <laughs> yeah. Like 90 minutes or 95 minutes or whatever it is, is I can deal with a bad movie. That's 90 minutes. I'll watch them nonstop. You know, like I was just last night going to watch the Charles Bronson film assassination. Cause it's 88 minutes. I ended up not watching it. But that's the sort of thing I will totally dive in because I'm like, well, it's supposed to be terrible, but it's 88 minutes. Sure, why not? Yeah, I mean, there are like 75-minute mo movies that suck and like 90-minute comedies. And, you know, I, I think I land I logged it on Letterboxd. Not that I even do that that often. I didn't write like a review or anything, but I gave it like one and a half stars for the second taken. I felt like that was fair enough for that it was doing interesting things to some extent. I mean, that... <laughs> The most interesting thing about it is that, like, uh, it's got some cool ideas, and I, I dig on what uh, Megaton did with it. He's just the wrong person to direct it. Yeah. Or anything. I have another question for you. You do the Mission Impossible podcast where you tackle Mission Impossible, the TV series and the movies, the entire franchise. And um, I'm really curious, you know, doing the Taken films, do you regard them as spy films? Not really. Uh, not, not, not as such. Uh, they definitely like, they, they tease it a little bit. There's spy craft in them. That's what's really cool about it. It is more taking the influence of a Bourne movie and applying it to like, like I said, a sixties era revenge movie or seventies era. It feels like death wish, like the first death wish though, at least in the first one, I would even say that the later two ones do still feel kind of like that, except for the third one, which is just the fugitive, like you said, except mm. uh, loses everything interesting about the fugitive. 
But uh, no, I, I don't regard them as spy films. In my head, if I'm reaching towards Taken 1, or Lord forbid I'm masochistic and decide to <laughs> reach towards Taken 2, I, uh, I I would not, that wouldn't be my first go. I'd be like, okay, Tony Scott's spy game is the way how we're going to go. Right. But uh, yeah, I mean, if we're going to talk about action filmography, I would, I would say that the first one's a pretty solid like action film since we talk enough about action choreography, at least we're about to as we get into the later sequels of Mission Impossible Not Taken. I think there's there's spy elements to these films certainly, and he is a former spy, which is definitely our in route to it. Yeah, no, totally. By the by the time you get to the third one, I think we're quite far away from uh, espionage. Yeah, I mean, once I saw you guys had the post with Taken One, I I just remember flipping through Instagram and being like, huh, yeah, sure, yeah, <laughs> it was kind of my reaction. That's what I'm hoping everyone at home does the same thing. Did the first one make the knock list? I know the second one probably didn't. No, the first one didn't quite. No. We like it, you know. I, I forgot, didn't you guys both reject True Lies? I can't remember. No, that made it in. Okay, that made it in? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that sizes up. <laughs> I was just checking my, my headcanon of what would be in the knock list. Well, I, I think what we'll do is we'll pivot over into our chat about Taken 3. But to tee us off, I'm going to read out the letterbox.com synopsis. Taken 3, it ends here. Ex-government operative Brian Mills finds his life is shattered when he's falsely accused of a murder that hits close to home. As he's pursued by a savvy police inspector, Mills employs his particular set of skills to track the real killer and exact his unique brand of justice. I am curious. Sorry to, sorry to add to the letterbox thing, but I think I saw it last night. Is there that poster next to it where it looks like Liam Neeson is standing in the set of Sin City? Exactly that. Exactly that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, everybody who is just, look, if somebody's looking up the letterbox right now on their phone or whatever, uh, just look at that poster. Just take that in. It's breathtaking, isn't it? It inspired our artwork this week, actually, as well. The, 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 uh, oh the helicopters God. and the skyline. It's, uh, it's a, piece of, a piece of art. Maybe unlike this film. Max Payne. It yeah. feels like Max Payne posters, yeah. actually. Yeah, it does the, have that Max Payne the vibe. The spirit. Right. Yeah. I was giving it too much credit with Sin City. The description, though, you gave, though, the synopsis, reminds me of something you would read on the back of, like, a VHS tape for an 80s mm -hmm. action movie. Yeah. It doesn't feel like a movie made in, like, 2012 or whatever this was. But I dig that about it, you know? I actually would give this one, like, solid props. It doesn't spoil the whole twist. It, if I saw that, like, on the back of a VHS, I'd be like, it, and it started, like, Liam Neeson or Charles Bronson, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'll give it a shot. I mean... It G's you up. It gives you that kind of, like, all right, yeah, I'll watch this. This is kind of cool. One of the things that I remember is that the Taken 3 trailers at least seemed like they were doing something more interesting than any of the previous ones beforehand. Uh... I didn't end up seeing it because it was talked like ass, but you know. Well, that that leads us into the our, our previous experiences, I suppose. So you didn't see this in theaters, Nathan? No, I I can't remember if I I think I saw the first one in theaters. That first one really really that was like a sleeper hit because mm -hmm. that released overseas, uh, and you know there there was just a bit of steam from the word of mouth, and then like a few weeks later. When it was January, I, I must have seen it because January was kind of is always a drought month outside of 2010, which has like the best January release schedule 
at least for the U.S. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I I think I saw the first one in theaters. I did not go into any of the other ones. I mean, it's the joke that Deadpool took off the internet where it's like, okay, at what point is this guy a bad father? And that just sort of ruined it. I mean, you can't have the comedic uh, persona of like a John McClane in a Taken movie. Like you, you can't have Liam Neeson being like, how does the same thing happen to the same guy at the same time when you're in the world of sex trafficking in Europe? You know, you got to take it fundamentally more serious. But yeah, Uh, did you guys see this in theaters? I I myself did not. I didn't see it in theaters. I am before we went into this episode, I was convinced that I hadn't seen it. And this was the first time watching it. But then watching it, I was just going, hey, I remember this. Hey, I remember this. And of course, there's that highly memed scene of him jumping over the fence and the famous 14 cuts. Yeah that uh, I want to get into later on. So I've definitely seen that. So I think I had seen this film on home release, maybe on like a, a rental service or like a movie channel at some point. But I don't remember enough to have an opinion on it. What about you, Cam? So I remember, you know, seeing the first two. And there was a lot of excitement for the second one because the first one had been such a big hit. And, you know, I read out some of my quotes from my review back in the back in the day in 2012 when I reviewed the uh, the second one. But, like, by the time the third one rolled around, the way they were trying to promote it was, like, this is really shifting gears. Like, we're doing a Taken movie you haven't seen before because the second one felt like such a retread in a lot of ways. And, um, nonetheless, there was just, like, no excitement. I went to this one, the third one, by myself. So, clearly, none of my friends had any interest in seeing Taken 3. And, uh, like, what was my memory of it? Just kind of walking out and shrugging my shoulders? Like, I recall not hating it like I remember having a very visceral dislike to the second one when I walked out of the theater whereas like this one I think it was kind of like the kind of movie that you go to a matinee at a cheap theater you know there's two hours spent okay I'll never remember this ever again I will never in the future have a podcast that requires me to watch Taken 3 and take notes on it that could never ever happen so clearly this is just a fading memory yeah, that was sort of the story of Taken 3. <laughs> can, can I just give an example of the notes I took on Taken <laughs> 3? Sure. Liam Neeson is incredible. Sadly, T. Like, I didn't even finish my <laughs> sentence for the next one. It was like, sadly, I must have been like, sadly, the movie's directing or something like that. But I was just so in, not not necessarily awe, but just like, you know... I, I know my visceral disgust for this. It's like talking about rancid meat. I don't have to write like a fucking <laughs> paragraph on rancid meat to describe what that's like, you know? Uh, I think I know what happened to your to your line there. I think you got as far as the T and then realized if you ended it sadly, it was perfect. <laughs> yeah, Liam Mason is incredible, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I didn't even write a review for Taken 3. Like there was no passion to put any effort into coming home and writing for a couple hours. There was probably a sense that no one would ever read this review if I wrote it. Like, Taken 3 really did feel like an afterthought. So I do have to say thank you guys so much for asking me to be here again. (laughs) Thank you. You you know, thank you so much for coming on and tackling Taken 3. (laughs) Yeah, we're we're, we're taking it all on today. That's right. Cam, do you know what I fantasize about? Mm, What is that? Brian Mills? All the time. No, it's uh, it's you telling me how this film happened, because I thought it was dead after two. 
Well, Liam Neeson sure thought it was because he was doing the uh, press tour for Taken 2 telling everyone there's no way you can do a Taken 3. He's just a bad parent at a certain point, like, you know, as Nathan said. It's never going it's to just, happen. Yeah, I can't <laughs> imagine ever doing another Taken film. Well, that was kind of the idea, but then Taken 2 made $376 million worldwide. And Luc Besson and Robert Mark Kamen were like, huh, well, that's interesting. And, uh, you know, they make these movies through Europa Corps. I, I have a curious question. Yeah. What was the budget on Taken 2? Oh, it was, like, fairly low. I don't have the number in front of me, but it's probably about $30 million. Yeah, like, that's what I'm assuming. Because these movies are not hard to make. No. And that movie, I mean, I remember Taken 2, like, everybody saw it out of, like, reluctance. I just checked it was 45 million was a budget for Taken 2. Oh, 45? Okay. So it probably moved up from the first one because the first one really doesn't have anybody in it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, um, you know, I found an interview with Robert Mark Kamen and he talked about Taken 3. He said, we didn't start talking about Taken 3 until we saw the numbers. But then we said, oh, okay, I think we should do a third one. And Fox wants us to do a third one. So... That was sort of the whole launch pad for Taken 3. And uh, Kamen said that the way these movies work are he sits down with Luc Besson and they have a mile a minute brainstorming session. And so he gives examples about the first Taken. And he said, you know, we're sitting just tossing ideas around a room. Uh, Luc Besson brings up the idea of a French cop. I guess there was a real story involving a French cop that somehow filtered into Taken 1. But then he said Besson had a vision of a father buying a daughter a karaoke machine because she liked to sing. And that was the nugget of the idea that spawned the first Taken. Uh, Besson's an odd duck. Uh, <laughs> all of his sexual abuse cases in general. If you look at his filmography and stack it all up, it's like, yeah, Arthur and the Invisibles, <laughs> Valerian in the City of a Thousand Plants, and Leon the Professional. And those are just, like, things he directed at this point, you know? Very strange man. He, yeah, he's a bizarre person. I mean, the first movie, like, that's a good hook, at least for that character. You see him just buying a karaoke machine and then just get shit upon afterwards. Yeah. It, I'm sure, like, every father in the audience was like, yeah, that is totally me. This is my Black Panther or some shit. <laughs> That is the hook of the first film. Absolutely. We spoke about it on the podcast. It is the dad rock film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is very, I don't, I don't think that the movie is consciously trying to do it, but it, it's something that is almost unconscious to the genre, but it has a very like a uh, uh, Republican dad who doesn't feel like he's being appreciated. And then his daughter goes overseas and uh, you should never go overseas because America is the best country, even though it's not, that's not the point of the first taken movie, at least, in the way how I articulate it. Uh, but but it, it is an interesting hook, and that's kind of uh, a lot of the reason why it got to the zeitgeist. I remember, like, shit, 2008, I must have been a fucking little, like, preteen. And I would have thought to myself, like, huh, I wonder if that happened to my daughter. You know, sort of stuff. What would I do? Yeah, like, it had a whole wish-fulfillment thing for kind of these gruffer, older dads that really did connect with people. But Cayman, I was hoping I could find, like, a really good pitch line he had for Taken 3 that would be really funny to read out in the podcast, but I didn't really have anything. What he said was, the intention was, we've taken everything we can take. It's got to go in a different direction. So that was kind of the idea. They were like... You've had Maggie Grace get kidnapped. You've had Liam Neeson get kidnapped. You've had Famke Jensen get kidnapped. 
there's no one left to kidnap in these movies that's going to have the emotional impact. So we've got to do something completely different. You take his karaoke machine. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that should have been the pitch. <laughs> I think that's a natural move. I mean, nobody did so well earlier this year. I will find you, and I will sing into you. And it should end with Brian Mills sadly doing karaoke by himself in a room to like some very filled with dead like... bodies, filled with dead bodies. It <laughs> yes. could be like the "You're Never Really Here" of the Taken franchise. I would watch the shit out of that movie. And he's doing like Aha's take on me. <laughs> <laughs> take me on. <laughs> Take on you're gonna get bad Nissan all this episode. <laughs> Believe me, we've done that for the first two. So yeah, well, I'm sure. <laughs> when it came when it came to locking down the cast, Famke Jensen and Maggie Grace were on immediately. Then they got everyone pretty much else. Neeson was the last one to join on. Neeson was negotiating. He was also very wary about joining this movie. Like he'd obviously said on the press tour that Taken Two seemed like the end of the road for him. And apparently he was having conversations with Olivier Megaton, who they also wanted to lure back. And both of them were kind of wary. Now, Neeson um, basically said, if someone gets taken, there's no point in doing it. Not with me. So it was this new approach to the material that actually got him on board. Also, the fact they paid him $20 million, which is 20 times more than he got paid for the first taken. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's, uh, let's dive a little bit into Neeson. This later era of Neeson is... We talked a bit about it earlier, but it's a uh, he's he's a very sad man. I mean, obviously, he lost Natasha Richardson like shortly before the time that the first Taken came out. And he's mm -hmm. in a lot of interviews openly said, like, I don't want to do movies that have to bring me back to that place. Oddly enough, this movie may have brought him back to that place with the uh, with the central hook. But you listen to him in interviews, especially that one awful thing that he said about, you know, like wanting to commit a hate crime for a while that in a lot of ways, I think everybody just got like, ah, eh, fucking Liam Neeson. But I mean, God, his mother just recently passed away of COVID trying to see him last year. The dude just strikes me and, and I love him. He's a great actor. Uh, strikes me as a very depressed individual. So I could totally see him after two sequels just being or two movies just being like yeah i've done this already and then proceeding to do it already for the rest of his career but it also feels like because he i think has a you know a very tough personal life that we we kind of joke about how liam neeson does all these action movies that are very reminiscent of taken there's a ton of them out there you know turn on your streaming network there's going to be a liam neeson movie up there there's like ice road i think is the new one but like the thing is he's a guy who i think works a lot because he just wants to stay busy. So I think he's doing, you know, three or four of these movies often a year just to stay busy. Yeah. I mean, he lends his credibility to all of these. I mean, we can all agree that we're, we don't look at this movie and be like, wow, Liam Neeson really phoned it in this time. No. Like, he doesn't give like an Oscar caliber performance, but you, you buy him the entire time. Honestly, if he were not the lead, I would just reject these. I mean, I don't want to jump too much into our thoughts, but one of the notes I have is his sincerity is one of the only good things about this film. Yeah, totally. He, you, you buy that he wants to be there and he means what he says. And from everything you read with interviews, he actually genuinely enjoys making these movies. He loves doing the fight choreography. He loves doing the weapons training. So like for him, it seems like, you know, as an actor who was doing a lot of prestige films and dramatic work, very heavy dramatic work in his younger years, he just kind of likes doing these sorts of, you know, kind of frivolous action movies. And I think 
I think it might be the same thing with uh, both Liam Neeson and Denzel Washington, less so more Denzel now and more so like him during the 2010s. But I mean, those are two alpha male actors. Like I've talked to people who have met Liam Neeson in person and say he's just one of the hugest people you will ever see, just proportion wise and everything. Like his hand is the size of, I don't know, my face. Like, or I guess my hands the same size as my face. Regardless, I digress. <laughs> uh, he He's one of those guys that I think is just like, you know, let me lend my gravitas to this shitty action movie and keep myself busy so I'm not like, I, I hate to say like drinking myself to death or anything, but he's constantly like talking about how he wishes there was more of like an open dialogue for people needing mental health as a celebrity. And he's, most of like every statement I've seen from him sounds super depressed. Even his comedic bit in Life's Too Short is just, this is the most depressing man you've ever met. And he sucks the joy out of the room. Yeah. And that's him playing himself as a parody. So I'm sure there, I don't know. It, it, it's interesting. I, I hate to feel like I'm bagging on him. It's just kind of the truth of the matter. Well, I'd say if anything, you're probably more impressed with, his energy and passion he's he's turned what could be a tragedy and could really derail someone's life into a motivation it reminds me of uh mark ruffalo do you know about the whole tumor that he found in his head yeah 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 so in like the last castle era uh mark ruffalo which is a really fantastic movie he ended up finding a tumor in like his ear while he was like swabbing his ears and he was actively sick for many years and he felt like he was constantly not as motivated to try for these big prestige movies and would take smaller bit parts and be in romantic comedies it feels sort of like neeson's version of the mark ruffalo thing and then eventually you know mark ruffalo blew up with the avengers movies and that's really all he has to do outside of prestige dramas that he wants to do and that's kind of the same thing with neeson at this point he had a huge tragedy that could derail your life and you know occasionally you'll get a movie where you're just like holy shit no Liam Neeson hasn't lost one notch like he isn't just an autopilot playing this person like the gray is a different character than Brian Mills even though it has the same gravitas or like uh uh what's that Ballad of Buster Scruggs it's insane that he's in that movie once you look at his other career Lego movie like Mm -hmm. he's great in the Lego movie I don't know. They, yeah, Widows. Yeah. I haven't seen Widows. I should see Widows. It's yeah. one of those movies that I felt like uh, it had everything on its paper to be like a big crossover success, like that blockbuster that also becomes the best picture winner and it kind of became neither. So I just ended up not seeing it. Solid movie. Check it out. But, um, oh, yeah. you know, I, I think like, you know, with him getting 20 million for this movie, it's justified. People show up for these movies because of him. So, uh, you know, might as well, especially if they're making like $376 million off, the, you know, the second one. Um, Megaton uh, said basically it took him a long time to join this project. He said basically he just decided, why not? <laughs> that was kind of the thinking. And he said he was won over by the fact it wasn't someone getting taken again. And also he was really interested in the cop character played by Forrest Whitaker. He was also a big fan of the emotion of the script. And we'll talk about that emotion going forward. <laughs> um, Do we want to start getting into the plot of this movie? Are we, like, holding bars for the tragedy? We'll just talk about the uh, the box office here. So the movie cost $48 million. Domestically, it did 
international 237.2 for a worldwide total of 326.5 so it did do a little less than the second but it did better than the first which was 227. Um, the top three for that year number one was transformers age of extinction number two was the hobbit battle of the five armies and number three was guardians of the galaxy that is a shaky trio with the exception of guardians of the galaxy <laughs> so so like one movie that exists and then the rest are completely movies that do not exist like the hobbit movies which made no cultural impact at all and I was trying to even search my brain for what you had just said. Transformers Age of Extinction. Yeah, the fourth one. Is that the one where they've, you've got the uh, Marky Mark and the Funky Punch? It is, yeah. That's just the first Mark Wahlberg one. Yeah. Mm. I think it is interesting, actually. So 2014 is a pretty great year for movies. That list would kind of leave you uh, not thinking as much. Yeah. But it was a pretty great year for revenge movies. I mean, John Wick changed the game action-wise in a way that I think it hasn't been changed since either The Matrix or Die Hard, mm -hmm. where it's like, okay, so the bar is well-choreographed neon fight scenes. That's what you need. That's what you need to deliver if you want to have a good action movie. Uh, and then you get a movie like The Equalizer, which does really well. Uh, isn't I think a lot of people consider it to be the inferior John Wick, but it, it's markedly better than most of your Taken sequels. It's just an interesting year when you look at like where the revenge film genre was going, because outside of it not doing as well as the second film, there seemed to be a sense that like, okay, we have rejected these completely. Like this era of filmmaking is done, the shaky cam uh, style, we can still get an older statesman actor to be a revenge hero, but you know, it's, it's fascinating to me. I, I just get the sense, thinking back to the time, that there was just uh, some sort of a voice out there of us not wanting this film. Like, why why do we have Taken 3? Uh, decide, apart from, you know, Liam Neeson not wanting to do it, and then the cha-ching noise came along, I, I feel like there was some sort of pull against it. Same with like the Charlie's Angels 2019 film, where people just didn't want there to be another film. And I remember there being a lot of jokes online about, you know, oh, yeah, as you say, bad bad parents, that sort of stuff. Even though it turns out that's not the plot. So I I wonder if that was maybe what held it back from from beating the second one. Could be. When did Taken Three come out though? I saw 2014 when I first saw it. Was it late 2014? I'm just curious whether or not the the like hogwash of like John Wick and Equalizer really wiped this movie out. Just to add context to the box office. Because it's not a disappointing box office. It's actually a really good one. I mean, these movies multiply really it's, well. It's made its yeah. money. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, it's made but, its money back. So, but, but as far as even society rejecting it, you know? Yeah, and it's weird with Taken 3 because it's regarded as a 2014 film because it premiered in Berlin in 2014, but it actually opened in early, early, early 2015, like right at the start of January for a lot of territories. So it's like one of those weird release dates. So like I gave the worldwide for um, 2014 because it is regarded as a 2014 film, but just in terms of the box office chart, they do place it now under 2015, sandwiched between, um, it lands at number 23, sandwiched between The Good Dinosaur and SpongeBob movie, Sponge Out of Water. So it's weird, like the Takens are like that though, where like Taken 1 is regarded as a 2008 movie, but it didn't play here until 2009. 
So like yeah, the Taken okay. movies have very messy distribution in terms of, you know, tracking it on box office mojo and IMDb. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Since we're still in the box office, because this is weirdly fascinating. So the first Taken, I remember distinctly premiering early in 2008, getting a lot of good word of mouth. People were like, holy shit, Neeson's incredible. He conveys this well. This is just what you need as an action film. Then it comes up in January fucking folds everything like laundry everybody can't get enough of like the idea of badass liam neeson and then we get to the second film which i think that was like a that must have been a summer release uh, i think it was actually a fall release i think or fall maybe release spring. well might have been spring okay but but markedly not a january release correct yeah. and then they moved back to january afterwards i think in almost like a okay, so they've had enough of this genre, but if we catch enough people with, like, a solid actioner in January, we have them. Like, it, it is very conscious move of, like, let's get back to basics. I think even the uh, the poster that we joked about has the more darker look of the first take, and they're trying to really pull the, like, remember this? You like this, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. I know, I know. We need to probably move on to the review, but I just, I now have a question in my head about um, release dates and and times of the year because in my head, uh, a January release is safe as like prestige films that they're meant to win Oscars and stuff. Okay, I I know what you mean. Um, that's sort of the case. This may be completely regional too, which is fascinating. Because yeah, so okay, in the North American world, um. You're right. A lot of the prestige movies that um, would have opened at the end of December are just left to run through January, as well as there are some that get like, you know, a New York and an L.A., uh, you know, release at the end of a year and then open in full in January. But in terms of like releases like this or the idea of a blockbuster opening in January, it means they've been dumped there. Because people are just generally focusing on the prestige films, the ones with all the big flashy marketing campaigns, the ones with word of mouth because they've started winning awards. When you're seeing something like an action movie generally being opened in January, it's because the studio was like, we don't care about this one. It has, we're not putting money into marketing this thing. Yeah, every once in a while you'll get a movie that knows it can clean up in January, like uh, Split did really well mm -hmm. uh but that was mainly word of mouth like okay so wait Shyamalan maybe has it back and then we got glass the next uh january and that movie like or not next january but a few years later that movie cleaned up decently well and got a big bump from like being in the familiar spot but if you're releasing a blockbuster in january like you don't really start till february yeah generally my birthday's in February. I'm always spoiled by whatever movie comes out in February uh, 17th range. Because, like, Kingsman, uh, oh, God, so many. John Wick 2. Yeah, my sister's birthday's in January, and every year we joke about the movie she'll be going to see on her birthday. Will it be Doolittle? <laughs> you know, like, it's always things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Doolittle's a great example. That's a movie that you just, holy shit, what do we have? Like, this is even smelling up everything. Let's dump it out right now in the beginning of January. Because whoever still has money just is like, okay, sure, we'll go to the theater and see Robert Downey Jr. do a doolittle. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is fascinating. I, I don't know. This box office conversation was more <laughs> into the space than I was ever expecting <laughs> I would be in Taken's box office. Well, I, I mean, Cam, do you have any more background on the film or should we get into the review proper? 
yeah, I'll just close off the behind the scenes here. I've got a couple things I'll mention. Um, Liam Neeson didn't rule out doing a Taken 4 during the press tour for Taken 3. He said, I think if audiences go and see it and they like these characters, I mean, I'd love to do something with Forrest again. And if it's in a Taken 4 scenario, great. And then he later said, no, he's not doing another one. <laughs> so he waited a few <laughs> years. He waited until about 2017, 2018 and said, no, no, it's all good. I'm, I'm happy to leave. Um, we should note, though, that there was in 2017 a Taken TV series. There was an origin story for Brian Mills starring Clive Standen, an actor I'm not familiar with. And it premiered uh, February 27th, 2017, and it ran on NBC for two short seasons. It's like 26 episodes total or something. I never saw this show. Yeah, I, I remember it being advertised. It was very much, it is the, this uh, franchise's uh, Treadstone or whatever the hell the show is for the Bourne franchise. I mean, this... This series, in a lot of ways, owes its existence to Death Wish and the Bourne movies in equal measures. Uh, so the fact that they did a TV show on NBC is like the least shocking thing in the world. But I just remember seeing it and I think the guy doesn't even have like a Neeson presence or accent. Right, now you just got me thinking about like, does he deliver the monologue? But in a really bad accent, like, I will find you <laughs> and I will kill you. Uh, <laughs> I never saw the show. Um, did anyone ever see even a trailer for the show? Anything? I did. I was... Yeah. Oh, God. It would have been 2017, you said? It might have been marketed in 2016, maybe, the tail end. But I just don't know why the hell I would even be watching NBC around that time. But I just remember... You know what? No, it seems... I can't put it... Because I, I used to watch only two shows on NBC religiously. Hannibal and Community. Like, a lot of those shows fell off the wheels, like, uh, you know, like, others, their, their freaking comedy lineup used to be amazing with The Office, Parks and Rec, but yeah, uh, I saw a few trailers for it, I probably was just like, oh, let me give this a watch, as if I would ever watch even the first episode, <laughs> uh, not, not that the idea of getting into what makes a man like that isn't interesting, but the well is so dry. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought it was fascinating. I looked up the cast on IMDb and his buddies in these movies, their characters aren't listed in the credits of the show. Like they didn't revisit those characters or if they did, they changed all the names. Oh, so I guess that's the worst. who knows if there's like a copyright. Yeah, maybe there's a copyright thing or maybe they didn't want to have to pay the writer or the creators of Taken for those characters. I have no idea, but I'm not willing to delve into the world of you that. You couldn't get them to do a cameo of golfing? Uh, who knows like so weird but poor leland orsa not getting a payday i mean he's one of the more <laughs> memorable parts about these movies inexplicably well let's jump into it that wraps up my behind the scenes on taken three scott i'll pass it back to you well here we are taken three taking my breath away no not quite I was hesitant going into this because I didn't think I remembered it. And as I said, watching it, things came back to me. And I really appreciated that they changed the story, that no one got taken. Although there is an argument that someone did get taken, but maybe I'll get to that later. But like my, my like top line of my review just says, I appreciate it's doing something different to one and two, but it delivers a meandering and yet restless action film. Yeah. That, that that really is sort of my like top line review. Okay, what about you, Nathan? So, 
I've, I've watched Taken 2 and then literally jumped into Taken 3. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of jittering, a lot of fast cuts there with, with my time with Mr. Megaton. It's just, it's one of the most inept movies I've ever seen. It, it is weirdly propulsive and unengaging. Mm-hmm. My eyes kept trying to fight themselves to stay on the screen not because what's going on the screen wasn't like i guess i guess it wasn't exciting it it was unengaging in a lot of ways but the editing style specifically in this movie is some of the worst action editing i've ever seen ever yeah i mean it's insane it's insane that so many direct-to-video movies like the fact that this movie was not a direct-to-video release almost astonishes me but there are a lot of people doing a lot of interesting things on direct-to-video right now it's funny because like uh, you know scott and i um bagged on some of the action in the charlie's angels 2019 film which a lot of it was quite poor admittedly like it was quite poor but taken three made me appreciate the action of that movie more which is really damning and i'll just give my thoughts here taken three I found this movie just so frustrating because I think a big part of the problem, and we haven't really said it yet, but this movie's almost two hours long. The previous Taken's are 90 minutes. And this is not The Fugitive. The Fugitive had a grandeur. It had ambition. It was trying for something much bigger. This movie's ripping off The Fugitive, but it's not artistically interesting. It's not really trying for much. So you're just like spreading out this story for far too long and it doesn't have the character depth it doesn't have the interesting set pieces as you know nathan said the action direction is very poor so it's kind of like let's just get to the fireworks factory why are we dragging this out so long and so for me a lot of it felt dragged down i could appreciate they did a better job i felt of creating villains that were a little more memorable than the previous film like i thought the villains in taken two are really weak and so that's something. Uh, I really do not like the recasting of Xander Berkeley into Stuart Townsend. Or, or sorry, du- I said Stuart Townsend, Doug Ray Scott. Two guys I will always confuse with one another. Doug Ray Scott is the villain of this movie. But like, that's just an actor that like is not interesting to me to really watch. Whereas like Xander Berkeley, he has something. I've seen him in so many movies. I was really bummed that he was not back for this movie because these two men look nothing alike. Like yes. Doug Ray Scott looks absolutely nothing like Xander Berkeley, so I don't even mentally connect them. I'm so glad that you guys that you brought that up specifically because I that was one of my biggest issues. I mean, just going back to the action thing, just to close the door on that, isn't even so much that the action direction is poor. It feels like a like doctor's note for not being able to deliver an action scene. You know, <laughs> uh, one of the worst things about it though is. The reveal with Xander Berkeley and Dougray Scott, I mean, they're such different energies in every facet. It's like if you got, like, uh, John Goodman to be recast by Daniel Craig. Like, it, it's such, like, a off-kilter progression, especially for a character that they are markedly, like, banking this movie on that being, like, a heartbreaking turn, even though it's evident the moment Dougray Scott opens his mouth. And... Uh, going for a little bit on Dugaray Scott, who I find to be very fascinating doing the Mission Impossible movies and the trajectory of his entire career. What I've realized about him is mm. he's not necessarily bad, but he is awful when you put him up against a movie star. Yeah. Especially as the heavy against him, because he cannot move out movie star anybody. And you got people like Tom Cruise or Liam Neeson, 
who you're almost having to buy that like this guy is more engaging <laughs> to anybody than Liam Neeson or like this guy has something and it it just you body automatically rejects him like it's a foreign agent and it, it's fascinating that they bank so much of the twists on that and talking about the fugitive just for a little bit one of the most engaging things about the fugitive a movie i saw in theaters a perfect film uh that i saw in theaters just recently this year for the first time what works about the fugitive is that dr richard kimball is always just lucky that he managed to get away. He's just a regular guy. Having a person with a very particular set of skills get pursued by people who markedly do not is just unengaging for two hours. Uh, but yeah, I, I did my rant. <laughs> no, no, it's true. And I just want to mention too, people may not know who Doug Ray Scott is, but he was the, you know, the villain in Mission Impossible 2. And he was also the guy who was cast as Wolverine in the first X-Men film and had to drop out because Mission Impossible 2 was running a little bit long on production. Yes. So, like, alternate history, you know, Doug Ray Scott is maybe a huge star as Wolverine, but here, like... He married Claire Furlani, so, like, he's a huge star in my book. Uh, he's doing great. He's living his best life. Yeah. But the thing with this movie that I find frustrating is it wants to do the kind of the fugitive thing. You know, you bring in the Forrest Whitaker cop character because you want your Tommy Lee Jones. But the thing with the fugitive is... As you said, there is a desperation to Richard Kimball's ability to stay ahead of Tommy Lee Jones. But also, there's a mystery to that movie that slowly unfolds. Um, this movie doesn't have a compelling mystery because, like, when Doug Ray Scott shows up on screen, he's, like, sweating ooze out of every orifice. Like, you look at this man, you go, there's your villain. It, there's never a sense of maybe he's, you know, a good guy. We don't know. It's very clear he's a bad guy right from moment one. And so there's just no suspense. And again, this is a two-hour movie. It's not 90 minutes. If it's 90 minutes and you give me an obvious villain, fine. You give me a two-hour movie and expect me to go through all these plot, uh, plot convolutions with this character? Come on, it just gets really tired and really boring to watch. What I mean, let's talk about this. This has, sorry, one of the worst inciting incidents to any movie ever. Just as far as its execution. Because you have Dugaray Scott comes in. He says... Uh, I want you to stay away from her. You know, he has like that whole vibe. And Liam Neeson's like, what? Why? You know? And you're immediately like, okay, so this random recast actor is saying him to, telling him to stay away from his wife. And then like two scenes later, his wife is dead on the floor of his apartment. And the cops are like, put your hands down, put your hands down. He's like, I can explain everything. Kicks the shit out of them and then leaves. And there, there is like a part. I mean, to the fugitive, he he had due process. He had like the the hammer came down on him. Nobody believed him. Liam Neeson doesn't even take for a second to try and convince anybody. He just kicks <laughs> their asses and then leaves. Well, uh, this is interestingly you you brought up a point about Doug Ray Scott in the beginning because I couldn't figure out if he was recast because I couldn't remember the character's name. Or if it was a new... I had to look it up afterwards. I was like, that name sounds familiar. Well, no, is, that, is it a new husband? Yeah. Or like, has she got married twice since him? And I'm, I didn't get that connection for a while. But then I realized, I think my third note down... Yeah, my third note down is, so he's the villain, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I, that, that's one of the issues with it. I mean, he's like the biggest Scooby-Doo villain you've ever seen in films. Like, it's basically a raggy. It pulls his mask off at the end. But you've seen it coming. There's no surprise. 
and that's boring. Well, it's like Dugaray Scott pulls off his mask to reveal another Dugaray Scott. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> not even bringing Mission Impossible into it. Uh, A slightly less sweaty one, though. <laughs> no, it, it's interesting because I didn't... Okay, I say, who is this guy? Why do they recast? I mean, why do they remarry? Because I didn't realize that they recast until Maggie Grace says, like, you know, there are a lot of things that have hurt me about seeing my mom die or something along those lines. He's like, but it doesn't hurt me as much as seeing how dead inside she's been with you for like years. And I'm just like, didn't they just get married? She was like married to somebody else earlier. And then I find out they're the same character. Fuck this movie, guys. I'm sorry, but fuck this movie. I, I will also jump on with your point about um, The Fugitive. Because that's something else I wrote down, and I totally agree with that. I wrote down, it's the fugitive on Adderall. (laughs) Especially with the editing. But, um, you know, with Kimball, he is, as you said, due process. He is a man trying to prove his innocence. But he's also not kicking the crap out of innocent cops. Never. You know, he is a good guy to the end. Whereas Brian is supposed to be your hero. And he's kicking the living daylights out of, you know, just guys doing their job. Yeah, I mean, out of people who he could easily be like, I didn't kill my wife, let me go in. Like, he he at least has some credibility. Crazy shit happens to him pretty often now at this point, especially early on in his life and, you know, apparently in the events <laughs> uncovered in the 2017 Taken NBC show. <laughs> but it is something where he and, uh, uh, oh my gosh, Forrest Whitaker, you feel like those two characters could have a conversation. There's an element to The Fugitive, this tension of, hey, this guy that we also like, but is a cold son of a bitch, we'll bring this guy in and bring him back into jail, and it's all going to go all over again until he dies, unless he proves his innocence. Since you don't have that moment of like him trying to, you don't have like a, there was a man in my house, you know, sort of, I realized that my Liam Neeson's and my Nicholas, or not my Nicholas Cage's, oh my gosh, my Harrison Ford's, I'm sorry, Nicholas Cage and Harrison Ford, you guys are not like each other at all. Uh, but it's, it's just fascinating. It is really like an excuse for a movie. Like it really is not so much a movie that's developed in any way. It also ruins itself at the end because Forrest Whitaker's character turns around and says, oh yeah, I knew you were innocent from like day one. And you're just left going, huh? And that's the thing, like the Forrest Whitaker character in comparison to like Tommy Lee Jones, Tommy Lee Jones is like <laughs> like a Rottweiler chasing after, you know, his quarry here in The Fugitive, right? Whereas like Forrest Whitaker comes across as a very intellectual character. He's someone who walks into a room and you see the way he's sizing it up. He's eating evidence. I didn't really understand that when he's picking up like the bagels. <laughs> yeah. By oh the way, gosh. there's a weird moment where Liam Neeson just walks into a bagel place and goes, four bagels. Like, do they not have more than one type of bagel? That seemed kind of weird to me, but eh, whatever. There's a lot of bagel stuff. Are, are we going to talk about the, the yogurt eventually? We'll, we'll get back to that. <laughs> but like, yeah, we'll get back to the other food items. But like the Forrest Whitaker character seems to be a thinker. He has like that Sherlock Holmes kind of thing. Like he has some sort of obsessive compulsive thing where he's snapping elastic bands a lot. He's playing with chess pieces in his hands. Um, I realized too that like later on down the road, we'll probably cover a movie called Mile 22 with Mark Wahlberg, where that character snaps elastic bands through the whole movie. And I was like, oh my God, Taken 3 got there first. But like (laughs) Forrest Whitaker's character is, um, 
he's just like an intellectual. So like you don't buy that Brian Mills couldn't sit down with him and actually have a discussion with him. And I don't think it's too hard to point the finger at old Stewart. <laughs> I don't think it's hard at all. Yeah, it really isn't. Oh, he was out of the country. And then he looks at her body is like, oh my God, it, it's her. Oh, by the way, here's a piece of information that I withheld until this exact moment. Go get him. You know, it, it is ridiculous. And I think uh, it, it sounds like we're being unfair to Forrest Whitaker, who lends his gravitas in the same way that Liam Neeson does. He's actually one of the Martin's mm-hmm. best things about the movie. But that character is not written in a way that's interesting. He's almost superfluous. And so are the people who are on the same team as him. I mean, with, I mean, with talking about the fugitive, which is, this is just constantly going to be a thing with this episode. The Tommy Lee Jones character and all the people that are in his world are so great that they got a spinoff. Like, there, there's nothing about these characters that are interesting. In more ways, it feels like uh, David Strathairn and... Uh, for an ultimatum, but with no pathos or anything. It almost would be better if he's in on it. I will say, I actually really like Don Harvey as his, like, I guess, second-in-command, who's kind of like a sleazy kind of dude. I thought that character actor was so much fun. He was probably my MVP to watch in this movie. Don Harvey is markedly great in everything he's been in, and I'm uh, I'm excited because he recently appeared on Better Call Saul, and seems to be set up as a character for like a later season. And I always love when you grab a character actor like that who will take whatever you have and give it their own seasoning that feels different and sleazy. Uh, it, it is just, it, it's a fascinating movie in the sense that it is not a movie. It doesn't feel like one for the entire duration of its runtime. Well, I feel like, I because I, I agree, I wrote down, in terms of my like likes column, I wrote down... Neeson's performance and Forrest Whitaker as as it's as the pros in this film. But one of the things that the film strips away from his character, if you look at again at, at Tommy Lee Jones, at least him chasing Dr. Kimball, he skipped bail. Like he actually has committed the crime post the crimes that he was actually falsely accused of. Now I know that means that that crime also didn't happen. But, you know, Tommy Lee Jones has every reason to be going after him and you understand his motivation. Doug Ray Scott's just an asshole. Yeah, yeah. So you don't, you he just, you just don't, you just hate the guy. There's no interest in the character. There, there is no like you switched the samples, didn't you? You know, you you don't have a moment like that. And I'm sorry if you guys haven't seen The Fugitive, you should watch The Fugitive. I think that should be your biggest takeaway from Taken mm-hmm. Three is like take yourself a no. I was trying to do a pun there. <laughs> take some time out of your day. <laughs> And watch The Fugitive, because that movie still holds up. And it's like one of those movies that if it's on TV, you're immediately watching the rest of it, no matter what. It'll take your breath away. Uh, one thing that I noticed that this film has absent from all the other ones, and there is elements of it, but this has like the least amount of focus on the father-daughter dynamic, which is, I mean, outside of the first one due to necessity, but there is so much of the strength of the second one, which I've never thought I'd ever say so much of the strength of the second Taken film is the fact that there is this relationship that has just been ongoing. There are a few scenes, but it feels like Maggie Grace recorded all of her scenes in like two days. Well, there's a real push to give her a sense of agency in the second film. And, you know, she's actually taken some training, some martial arts and things like that. She actually defends herself and she does the driving sequence in two. She is a, a main character. It's almost almost her POV for a little bit of the film. Whereas this, she's just a background. And that's a shame. 
Well, I like the bit where um, Liam Neeson, you know, <laughs> poisons her drink <laughs> to uh, get her out of class to meet him in a bathroom. But I thought like that scene would played out well. While, while she's pregnant, Cam, whilst she's pregnant. Holy shit, I didn't even think about he that. He didn't know that, Scott. He didn't know. <laughs> didn't she reveal it afterwards? Yeah, well, Brian Mills is not father of the year. <laughs> oh my god. I mean, from from a movie that I consider to be kind of perfect, uh, Fast Five kind of does a similar thing where sure. Jordana Brewster runs through an entire village and crashes through things and says, guys, I, I can't be as engaged in this mission because I'm pregnant family just got bigger yeah uh but like i like that scene of her and neeson like in the bathroom stall i thought that was good i liked her giving attitude to the to the police officers there don harvey there but like you're right like kim feels like a bit of a background character i mean look the taken care uh, the taken franchise does not do wonders with its female characters and i think she's kind of sidelined and i really don't like what they do with famka jansen the most like a mistreated actor in this whole trilogy like oh totally i feel so bad for her she's a really solid actress and the first one treats her like garbage the second one gives her a complete whiplash character arc that you're like where did this come from and then in this movie you get what 19 minutes with her and then she's killed yeah i mean she is weirdly more mistreated than the daughter ever was in the first movie it feels like because just the lines that they have her deliver it I will say, especially in the first one, but the first one is more forgivable because that movie is trying to, like, get you to the end credits the moment it starts. So it's just giving you narrative shorthand of, like, oh, hey, I don't want you here. I've now married a new guy. He's better. Why do you want to be at your uh, daughter's birthday? Which is all shitty writing, but <laughs> markedly, like, is enough shorthand. When she's given more to do, they give her, like either her being tied up and slowly killed or being killed like that is the extent of her characterization well she gets two movies in a row where her throat gets slashed yep god like come on <laughs> come on so guys. once again i'm glad you guys brought me on for taken three uh <laughs> at last minute none do less we're sorry it's, it's okay it's yeah. okay we're all good this is fun well, I think I, I, we have a lot to, I think, critique about this film, but there is one thing I wanted to call out as a, as a credit to it, and this is actually in, in the writing. I wouldn't say maybe the rest of the film, but this bit a little bit. The whole yogurt thing, and maybe we can spin off into how hilarious that is, at least it sets something up in the beginning. So you have the boyfriend saying how she has this particular, you know, not a set of skills, but this particular rhythm pattern that she follows and it's like a thrown away line you don't even know why he says it but then it's paid off later he mentions the yogurt for back i know it's all like crappy writing but i at least give them credit for setting something up and paying it off sure i just love that they had to go to the other like to the gas station clerk and he's like you know uh every time she comes in and gets the same particular yogurt drink and then uh she just drank it straight out of the refrigerator must have been thirsty like it's uh <laughs> It feels like one of those scenes in a Law & Order episode to just keep the movie going. Which is the worst, considering that this movie is longer than all the Taken movies. I wonder if part of the problem is that when you watch that first Taken, so much of it is just Liam Neeson barreling through looking for his daughter, right? Yeah. Whereas, like, when you get to Taken 3, it's very dialogue-heavy in a way that the first one is not, because Liam Neeson's frequently on his own. Whereas here... You're spending a lot of time of conversations between the police officers, 
you know, the uh, Maggie Grace character and the whatever his team is back. They're all talking to one another. And dialogue is not a strong suit of the Taken franchise. <laughs> it's, uh, it, the sequels are shockingly more plot heavy. Like, for the first one, what works about it is how simplistic it is. That is exactly the thing that drew people to the movie. They're like, oh, I just want to see a dude kick ass, clear room, and it's going to look badass, and Liam Neeson is going to torture some suspects and leave a giant, more bloody than you expect for a PG-13 level of carnage, you know? And these movies take a lot of time spinning their wheels. Like, I, I was shocked when, like, it had been 40 minutes into Taken 2 where Liam Neeson had not kicked ass, and there's about 40 minutes left of the movie. And then when he kicks ass, it looks shitty. This one maybe gets you into the plot more heavy on, but it is so uninteresting compared to what it could be. And we've seen what it could be, which is The Fugitive or any or Taken, you know, it's just it's a fascinating movie and how mundane it is. But also, like you said it up front, like Liam Neeson, the a big part of the appeal was Liam Neeson kicking ass through Taken 1. There's not a lot of Liam Neeson action in this movie. Like, there's chase sequences. Um, <laughs> well, I, I want to talk about some of that action in a second. But, like, a lot of the uh, action in this movie is him just running away. Whereas I think a lot of the appeal of those first two was Liam Neeson using physical takedowns. You get, like, you know, a fight at, like, a Russian crime lord's penthouse near the end of the movie. There's bits and pieces. There's a fight in a liquor store I thought was actually okay. But, like... It's few and far between, and this is a franchise that was built on the idea of Liam Neeson just tearing through, you know, like, dozens and dozens of adversaries. I'm curious, where did you guys land on the action in the first one? Because I did a lot of talking about how I felt like it was, you know, shaky cam but done well. Did you guys land in the similar uh, wheelhouse? I, th I, I, I think the action was probably the best bit of the first film. It, It's the whole, like, the Dark Knight thing. He's just tearing through bad guys trying to get to justice and I, I like that aspect of it and that's lost from the second one it's definitely not here in the third yeah I felt the same way and that like the action in Taken 1 at the time I think when I saw it in 2009 I kind of was a little more eye-rolly about it just being kind of that shaky cam action which I was not a fan of but watching the movie again for the podcast I was more appreciative that it was very propulsive which is something I can't say about the action in Taken 2 and Taken 3. Yeah, it, it kind of doubles down on how superfluous all the action scenes feel in the sequels. I mean, there is something that carries on from 1 to 2 that is always interesting, which is seeing Brian Mills like work his way through a situation. And weirdly enough, this movie hardly has any of that. All I can think about is like, oh yeah, there just happens to be a sewer underneath my garage. Or this garage. That was weird. Yeah. And it, there is no, like, inventiveness to the action. There is no Liam Neeson being tied up and getting Maggie Grace to figure out his location, which you're actually like, okay, this is interesting, a bit stupid, but interesting. And there's no, like, uh, there's no show of his craft, which is the, the whole essence of the character. He has a very particular set of skills, skills that make me a nightmare to people like you. And he, uh... When you get to Taken 1, there's that great ass-kicking moment when 
three guys run into a room. They see a shit ton of dead bodies. They don't know what happened. And Liam Neeson has disguised as one of the dead bodies and kills every single one of them brutally, but with as low effort as possible because <laughs> this is just second nature to him. Somehow these sequels feel that he needs to put in more effort and less thought into his action sequences. And it makes for a way less engaging movie. It also just turns into Superman scenario where they just put him in a room with a group of people and he just takes them all down because we know that's what Brian Mills can do. And it doesn't show him kind of working through a scenario or using little tricks of the trade. Like that's the fun of this series. And there was a moment that I, I really want to, I think we need to talk about because it's kind of famous on the internet. Oh, totally. And it's, just, it's, I mean, the joke about it is, and Scott's referenced in our previous taken episodes is the Liam Neeson jumping over the fence, but that's only a part of it. The sequence in question is when the police first surround him in, you know, his bedroom after Lenore is found dead. And he, oh my God, escapes out a window and then goes on a chase at the police. This is one of the most inept action scenes I've seen in my entire life. The moment where he dives out the window, there's like 37 different cuts. I'm seeing, it just really leads me to ask a question that I'm not making fun of Liam Neeson. But when I watch this chase, this is my only answer to what the problem is here, other than Olivier Megaton being a terrible action director. Can Liam Neeson run? In Taken 2, we did have a long shot of him running that kept on being just cut up as he was still walk- running down a corridor, uh-huh. which made me think, and I mentioned it in the episode, that they had to like stop and start the shot. So then you've got this scene, as you're talking about, and like... That silly scene of him sliding out the window onto the into the alleyway, like I I don't know what that is, and it looked terrible. So I do wonder if he has the physicality to still do that at that point. He's sixty two years old when they shoot this movie, so it's a very real question. And I mean, the whole bit where he's out running the cop, there's no geography to anything because it feels like they're cutting around a stunt man who's running. And there's a part where at the very end where he's escaped, he's you know gone through the sewers. It has this moment in an aqued, uh, in a uh, aqueduct that made me laugh out loud where it's kind of this weird pop music playing and it, this sad music. And it shows this shot of Liam Neeson doing a very slow jog down the aqueduct. And it's like the sad, you know, incredible Hulk, uh, you know, tinkling piano music basically as he does this sad old man run. And it's like, <laughs> I don't think he can run. I think that was a big part of the problem is there have you know writing all of these very elaborate chase sequences and Liam Neeson they're having to cut around constantly with a stuntman that's the only thing that makes sense oh no it it is it reminds me of something that Samuel Jackson had in his contract for all the Avengers films and it, in a lot of ways Steven Seagal kind of has a similar contract but Jackson is smarter about it uh where he says no matter what I'm not going to run it isn't a decision of, hey, you know, I, I'm not comfortable running on camera because I am, but you're asking me to try and look cool, a 69-year-old man or however old Sam Jackson was, in a duster running with a bazooka to shoot down a plane. It's never going to look cool. I will do a scene where I am like seated or behind something. I know my angles. I know how to play it. And you watch Avengers and you're never like, oh, Sam Jackson looks too old to run, even though they have a stunt double for him in one scene, you know? But with Neeson, so much, at least from what I've heard of why these movies are more interesting to him at this point, is that he feels like it's good exercise. You know, he gets to 
do what he needs. I'm sure he cannot run in a way that looks cool and engaging to the camera. I, I wouldn't even be shocked if like it wasn't all stuntman. I think it would just be separate instances and Oliver Megaton is just like, okay, so we cut it all together. That's fine. Because that seems to be a solution for everything. And that fence jumping scene, which I had known as a meme for years, that's all I define with this movie, the fence jump movie. I thought that that was just a separate instance in this movie where it's like, okay, well, maybe they just got a little over the top with their edits. The whole movie is like this. The whole but not over movie. the top of the fence. Yeah, not over the top of the fence. <laughs> <laughs> Ten comedy points, nice. Uh, it's it's just it's insane that these movies are so less engaging the more action they have as they get later on. And I think it speaks to Megaton as a director more than Liam Neeson as a physical performer because he has shown in the past to be a, an extremely physical actor who can, you know, he'll jog over somewhere. And it, I don't know. It's just, it, it's strange to me. Okay, so... Liam Neeson isn't Joey Tribbiani. Hmm. He's not putting down I do dance on his resume and they're expecting him to learn dance choreography, okay? Like, they know he is a 60-odd-year-old man. They understand his restrictions. So the first problem I have is they've taken him on and they are trying to present him as this action hero. They know it's going to fall down as soon as he's seen running. So they cut around it, which I, I get. You would cut around it. But this is where my like, lack of knowledge of Hollywood comes in, because I don't know if this is a cinematographer's problem, a director's problem, an editor's problem, but why would you not have just shot a stunt double from behind jumping over the fence? That's what you do. And then have like a picture and then him just landing. Like, that's it. Two shots. Yeah. Like, you know, if you look at, um, what's, what's the movie I'm thinking of? Uh, it was one of the Bournes. In fact, I think it was Bourne Ultimatum, where Jason Bourne barrels out the window in the Tangiers chase, and you see him go across, like, and land through the next window. Like, Matt Damon mm -hmm. didn't do that. And it screams to me, at least, like, I, I hate to harsh on any director because I'm somebody who wants to be a director at some point, and I've directed things before. There is an ingenuity in your limitations. You can find ways around Liam Neeson can't hop up the fence. Maybe he doesn't hop up a fence. Maybe he does something different. Or maybe you just get a stunt double, which you'll hear people complain about. But the constant cutting around everything loses the impact of why this style of action scene was invented. Because, like, Cam Scott, I'm sure we all know that, like, the shaky cam action style is one of everybody's least favorite things about the 2000s. Like, the mm -hmm. Bourne movies created and perfected them. And it, it's rare where a movie manages to do it because what it is supposed to do, at least with Greengrass's films, especially Supremacy and uh, Ultimatum, is that you are supposed to feel like you are thrown into the middle of a fight. You are supposed to feel like you're feeling the chaos of it. But if you use it for every time he hops over a fence, it doesn't fucking work. It just doesn't. Uh, I, I totally forgot if we can swear on this podcast, and I know I've certainly done it. <laughs> You, you've done like twenty. It's fine. We're in it now. Um, Explicit. It's, it's supposed to be vis. Yeah, it's supposed to be visceral. That style. You're meant to feel like you're part of the action. I completely get that. But this, you know, fourteen cuts for jumping over a fence, which is the exact number, and I know it's a meme, but that is twelve too many, and it completely removes you from the film. Completely removes you from it. You just know you're watching someone who's not very good at directing. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's like he doesn't know how to stage the action, so the editor has to work with what they have. And they're cutting it really fast, it feels like, to disguise these things. And it just looks awful. And I mean, like, there's a car chase in this that I think Megaton said was the most challenging aspect of the whole movie to shoot was this big freeway chase where you have, like, a, a container truck flipping over and things like that. And I'm like, once again, it looks impressive in terms of the fact they flipped a truck. But, like, the geography of the chase is a nightmare. You have no idea where one car is in relation to the other. And so you're kind of just watching things happen. It doesn't feel like it's propulsive. So, again, it's like a guy who's not good at action. I don't know. Like, the thing is, Olivier Megaton, I'm sure, is very talented visually. He would have to be. Like, maybe he needs to be making art films or something. But, like, action is clearly not his thing. I just think it doesn't interest him at all. Probably not. I mean, I just think, when I think of, like, truck flips, I just think of The Dark Knight. Yeah. It's basically one shot, you see that truck flip over. It, the camera holds on it, more or less. I think you get one or two cuts. But that whole action sequence you're talking about, Cam, it's relentlessly cutting around it. And I, I'd lost it by that point. And I watched this film twice, and I struggled to pay attention even the second time. When that container truck starts flipping, it actually looks like it's flipping by itself because you can't really make sense of other cars hitting it or anything. It looks like this, car, this truck is just doing rolls in place. It's very strange. So I, eager listeners, since this is such a big discussion, I think with the later two films and should be something that you get some merit out of it, you should find some insight in what we're talking about. Otherwise, what was this all about? Except for to make your work shift better. But <laughs> Take a look at the, honestly, I would say any chase by Michael Bay, but primarily the Bad Boys 2 freeway chase, which I would say is one of the best car chases of all time, at least top five. It stays away from giving you really any sense of geography, you know? Uh, there, There is some, like, you'll get some close-up shots, but it is almost cut to shit. It should feel like an Oliver Megaton movie. But every time that you get, like, a boat hitting something, you get the impact of that. You at least feel the weight of what you're seeing. And looking at that car chase, if he says that's one of the most difficult shoots he's ever had, yeah, I, I believe it because it looks like it could be very impressive if handled by anybody but him. Uh, you look at these car flips and it looks fascinating. Michael Bay, or not Michael Bay, sorry. Uh, you brought him up, Christopher Nolan, kind of on the same level for me. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, not going to offend everybody there. <laughs> uh, but as far as like scale and destruction in their, you know, action scenes, Nolan is great at communicating the scale. There's nothing communicated by Megaton at all during any of these action scenes. What's communicated is we want to make you feel like something's going on when nothing is going on. I mean, there's another car moment where bad guys run Liam Neeson off the road later in the movie. And like that moment just reminded me of the opening car chase for Quantum of Solace, where I'm just like, I, I don't even really know what's going on. And it has the whole like goofy Liam Neeson escaped from the flipping car, even though it happened in about half a second, this sequence. Moments like that, like, it just removes the impact. Also, I think we need to talk about the finale of the movie, which is, like, Liam Neeson taking down a plane with his car. And, again, should feel like this big, explosive, movie-ending action sequence. And you kind of watch it and go, like, no, oh, okay. 
what makes matters worse, I mean, that doesn't work, and you're right, but also how it, he treats Doug Ray Scott's character at the end. I hate this. He he doesn't have his vengeance. Yeah, not yeah. at all. It just lets him live. Like, why doesn't he just... I know, okay, I know he's meant to be a good guy, and he's on the side of righteousness and such, but he should just end him. This is This is not a feel-good film. You're not taking your family to this. Why would you not take... Okay, ending of Taken 1. We can neg- immediately shot. That's it. That's yeah, it. Yeah. Just cold. Like, that is what defines his character. He's a cold motherfucker. This brings out... He's a problem solver. Yeah, he's a problem solver. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, <laughs> his problem-solving techniques involve torture or just shooting somebody and asking no questions at all. which uh, Or asking questions after he tortures somebody. There's... There's never a moment in the first Taken where you are like, Liam Neeson can't do this. You're never for one second given that moment. And that movie uses him and his age effectively well. Like I said, he lays down on the ground, acts like a dead body, and then shoots three guys. And then you see just the sounds and the thuds from afar. And that's all you need. And then you get like a scene, like when he tortures the guy and says like, uh, I'll leave the power on until they have to shut it off for a lack of payment or whatever. Like, it's so great. You look at that scene, you're like, fuck, this is insane. He just threw, you know, it's just, Liam Neeson is not incapable of convincing you that he is capable of this stuff. Oliver Megaton is completely incapable of convincing you of anything. (laughs) And I don't think he has any interest in it. I hated this final moment, too, where, like, you've captured Stuart, the man who killed Lenore. Like, uh, a lot of the villains in the previous Takens, they threatened things a lot more than they actually did, and they got killed horribly. Whereas, like, Stuart's done something really heinous in the world of Taken, which is, like, kill, you know, the Famke Jensen character. So, like, why not just kill him, first of all, in the takedown of the plane? That's something. But, like, um... The fact that Liam Neeson says, you know, like, oh, I know you're going to get out of prison pretty early because you'll have good lawyers, and then I'm going to find you. Credits. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, you give us this weird downbeat ending to, like, well, I'm going to wait, like, two or three years till this guy gets out of prison, and then I'm going to kill him? Like, that's not what this, that's not what the audience is turning up for. <laughs> well, you got to think, he spent two films now, this is the third, trying to get his wife back. And this guy has killed this wife. Okay, well, we're going to murder him. But then, you like the second one, for instance, the villain of that who is getting revenge for his son, which I completely get as a, as, as a, a motivation for the character, he tries to let him go, and then the villain pushes him to kill him. So, you know, Brian is pushed into a situation where he has to murder someone. In this, he lets him go, but you, you could have easily just written it where, like, I don't know, the plane engine sucks him in or something, but... <laughs> Slightly out of his control. Sure. I don't know. That's already a more entertaining ending. Or even like Stuart Stuart pulls out a gun or something like that. Yeah. The crazy thing about Taken 3, and this is almost a meme as well, is how much better Taken 2 is markedly than Taken 3. At least in my opinion. I I know it's not a huge jump, but you actually bringing up how he handled the bad guy unlocked that memory. And I was like, you know... Liam Neeson saying, you just have to live with it like the, like all the parents of all the girls that you kidnapped is actually powerful. There's something that like Liam Neeson is given something that has some meaning. 
that could <laughs> do something good for the greater good. I don't even fucking know, but it it at least has something. This has absolutely nothing, and it does not help that Xander Berkeley was recast, who is somebody who I could actually see making this reveal sing, mainly because we at least have established history, if not not well-written history, but history between the two characters. Dugaray Scott shows up and is a completely different guy of a different body type, who you immediately know as a bad guy, and then he lets him go at the end. Or not lets him go, but lets him get off easier than you've ever seen him let anybody get off. Yeah, and it's also a little iffy that, like, uh, the previous films had Liam Neeson, like, killing Albanians left, right, and center. But when it comes to the white villain, yeah. he's like, well, you're going to prison. <laughs> you're, you're, the, you're the one I'm letting <laughs> oh, off the hook. <laughs> I did not think of that. I mean, what's crazy about the first one is that it's, like, weirdly equal opportunity. Like, there are a lot of white dudes at the center of this trafficking ring. I will say, uh, and, and this is awful praise because it's not really praising the movie, but it's more praising it for what it didn't do. I'm glad that we never, in any of the movies, I never felt like any character who was uh, being involved in the sex trafficking ring was being exploited more than they needed to be by the film. And uh, the only character I feel like was exploited was somebody who was not put in there, which is Famke Jansen. And this movie just basically tells you like, yeah, she doesn't matter. By the end of this movie, which, I mean, her character didn't matter to me at all, but I should at least feel like this matters to him. It feels like it hardly matters to anybody, and that's not due to lack of the actors trying. Yeah. Well, that, that's that's important to the viewer. It may not be important to you particularly, but uh, as a viewer that's invested in the Taken franchise, you want to see that character paid off or at least avenged, but she's not. You guys, I know, talked about F9, and I haven't listened to your episode but there is something, Vin Diesel is not giving like a great performance, but you always buy that he cares about every member of his family. Yeah. Like that there are like 20 guys in the, 20, 20 different people, a large amount of people who he cares about more than anybody on this planet. He's like, Lucas Black, you're so important to me. <laughs> <laughs> and those movies are directed in a way where it's like, hey, maybe you don't care about family and maybe it's a meme. But we're, we're going to end everyone with a barbecue because these people matter to each character. And I, I just want to stress this. I'm giving this praise to a Fast and Furious movie and not to a Taken movie. And you look at the way how Taken was, I would say, kicked the doors off a little bit. It was a sleeper hit in 2009. And the Fast and Furious franchise uh, was mostly dead in the water until the, the fourth one. Uh, I would argue more the fifth one. The, it's just, it's insane how time has come. It's basically what I'm saying. It feels like 20 years. And like the Taken franchise, I feel like hasn't particularly aged well. Like I, I don't even know that a Taken movie would play nowadays. Yeah, I mean, the first one, I was, I was remarked by how much better it played off than I thought it would. It doesn't fully play off better, but it feels like a movie from another era and it has that going for it. These movies just feel like an uninteresting retread of everything that we've seen done in action movies. Yeah, it's, it's true. One last thing maybe to touch on, Scott, something you and I have brought up in the last two reviews. We haven't mentioned it too much so far. His buddies actually get more to do. After we complained that they were like basically just showing up for cameos on the golf course, 
I actually was setting myself up for more of that where we were introduced to them on the golf course in like a 30 second scene at the start of this movie. But we actually get to see the, the team, you know, led by um, Leland Dorser doing things throughout the movie. I'll say this much. I am happy to see them getting more to do in, sh in terms of, you know, exhibiting their training throughout the movie. I just wish it had been things that were actually interesting and fun. <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah, you know, they helped, you know, sit on a truck and hold up some cops, that sort of thing. <laughs> There's a scene in the in that truck, and uh, John Grease, I think that's how you say his name, Grease. Yeah, he's he's literally sat in front of a laptop, just tapping. He doesn't, no one knows what he's doing. He doesn't mention what he's doing in the scene. He's just tapping. And I, I'm sure he must have been doing this for a good few days on set because he was in the background <laughs> of the scene, just tapping away. And I just think, well, that's a particular set of skills you've got there, sir. But what, what? I'm glad they get their moment. I'm glad they do. But what bugs me is the second they get their moment, it, it costs Leland Orser his life because apparently he's dumb enough to leave a gun loaded on the table next to the guy they suspect is a bad guy. I didn't think he died. I thought he just got shot in the shoulder. Well, it, yeah, they sent for a medic, but he, yeah, he got he got shot though. No one wants to get shot. Yeah, I think it is interesting if you're like sitting down and you're like, okay, so what do we have of the first Taken movie that could really, or even what do we have from the second movie? I feel like anybody in their right mind would be like, okay, so we doubled down on the Leland Orster of it all. Like he's not necessarily the audience surrogate, but he feels like a believable guy in an unbelievable world. I feel like. Uh, and and maybe this is just too bold of a claim as far as like me trying to find good things in this movie. But I feel like if you give if you double down on the amount of him, you could possibly have like some franchise juice. That's all you really. There's no juice in this franchise. I mean, it, it's a movie that should have never been sequelized to begin with, and the second movie sucked, and then the third movie sucked even more inexplicably. I mean, like Leland also is is the Tom Arnold of this film. Yeah. He's the man in the van. Perfect. And you know, Tom on yeah, he Tom Arnold's bumbling around in true lies, but he's lovable. Yeah. And I think Leland also has a lovable side to him. But that the gun on the desk really did bug me, I have to say. Did you notice too that like Leland Orser uh is shown doing like two things by and large in these movies? Either A golfing or B sitting in front of the television. <laughs> it sounds like your life cam. It is. It actually is very accurate. I am the Leland Orser of Spy Hearts. <laughs> if anything, what you do is you pull like a nobody where Liam Neeson is like, okay, we need to take out these guys. I can't do it alone. And you get his group of buddies who are qualified in the same department. Maybe one of them's in the van like Leland Orser. And you have them team up and take down the bad guy. You give them like a feeling of like okay so this isn't the same one because it's him with like a he's got his buddies with him and this is like the army buddy uh shootout scene maybe a few of them bite it what if yeah well what if you do the ending where you have the team of them take down the plane but like yeah you kill off you know whether it's john grease or dave uh Warshawski, like one of them gets taken out that would actually be interesting. It would actually lead to like a big explosive finale. Whereas like these guys, I, I was so happy to see them do more, but like they don't get things that are memorable. It's just kind of like we're using them more, but we're also not writing them exciting things to do. Well, this is this is, might pivot me into maybe my last point. Um, I'm glad they didn't kill anyone because it would deprive me of what we could have as a sequel. And that is the Taken Four. <laughs> oh, where all four of them get taken. Who's rescuing them? Or they're just like working as a team. Okay. That's it. I yeah. want to see them actually be a team on a mission. 
have them work as a team. Throw Maggie Grace into the mix. I, for we we haven't gone too much on Maggie Grace because she's not in that movie, but she's great in all three of these movies. I think that she doesn't get enough respect. I think she oh, not, not the first one. Not the, the first one's a, a little, little running. There's a lot of running in the first one. You know, a, a lot of weird. arm swinging. <laughs> I was just, I remember being amazed at how old she was in Lost, and she believably like slipped into I'm a 17-year-old girl mentality, and I feel like she's acquit herself really well in the like later films, even though she's given shit to do. I like her a lot more in the sequels, where it feels like she's playing more of a mature character. So I, I, I like her in this one. I liked her in Taken 2. She, okay. I think, was probably the best thing in Taken 2, for sure. Just to, to fit into my plot of Taken 4, a- adding her to the team is Taken 5, kind of like the Oceans trilogy. They add a person each time and adding a number. <laughs> I'm in, so I'm she into is that. the fifth, making it Taken 5. Yeah. And make it a part of the title every time. Uh, take 5 will be the last <laughs> <the third> one. <laughs> my Taken 4 is going to actually merge two properties together. I'm going to call it the Taken of Pelham 123. Where uh, the oh. four of them have to, uh, you know, take a, um, a subway train. That would be my movie. Here is my pitch. And I've had this pitch since, like, the second one came out. Taken four, identity theft. You can even throw Melissa McCarthy into the mix. But somebody has taken Brian Mills' identity. He's like, I didn't do all of these receipts. So, you know, he's just like, <laughs> I, I went into a Folgers twice. I, I, I don't even have Folgers. You know, like, you just have him, like lose his shit at like a bank attendant and they're like sir we're gonna have to ask you to leave uh i'm sorry you're just gonna rank up more stuff (laughs) he's constantly trying to prove that it wasn't him and maybe you throw a murder plot into there and he finds out like it's just some woman in the midwest who has like three cats and (laughs) managed to swipe his credit card no i didn't sign up for match.com pro account (laughs) (laughs) exactly that's my pitch taken for identity theft would you not watch it is that Taken 401k? <laughs> Taken 401k. <laughs> oh, man. Taken for a ride. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's a lot easier to do puns with Taken 4 than it was Taken 3. I had real trouble trying to come up with different titles for that one. Honestly, I'd be so invested. That would be, like, such a great idea. <laughs> like, oh, I... You know what? Why, why are we not just like crowdfunding this? When are you guys gonna like do spy hard movies where you guys make sequels to movies that you wanted? I'm I'm sure there's like a Harry Palmer <laughs> one there. Sure. Well, I don't know. After those other sequels, I don't know if Scott and I want to compete with those TV movies. Um. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, though, if they make a Taken Four, though, they're gonna put the four in place of the A in Taken. Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. That's how I wrote it. I, I used to have a journal of like bullshit sequels, like uh uh jaden smith in like a a remake soft remake of home alone because it seemed like that was what he was going to do like remake sort of 80s 90s movies that we all have nostalgia for so i'm like okay so he's in home alone and i don't know yeah i it was a it was a dumb bit but i was really proud of the taken four one i i was an interesting high school student i was popular i swear funnily enough all of our films sound more interesting than the one we watched yeah Mm, yeah yeah I mean, we're, we're looking for angles. They're just like, what has worked? Mm. <laughs> I mean, The Fugitive got multiple Oscar nominations. Um, Taken 3 did not, although I believe it got a People's Choice Award. Best kiss. It won the 2016 People's Choice Award for Favorite Movie Thriller, and it beat Insidious Chapter 3, The Poltergeist Remake, The Boy Next Door, and uh, Unfriended. So there you have it. Taken 3 is an award winner. 
2014. Well, I mean, it's People's Choice. Tw- so. tw- no, 2016. Oh, it would have been. Tw- tw- do the People's Choice? Do they not run every year? That's what I'm wondering. Like, it's so well, strange. Okay, I don't so understand. if we're assuming we're assuming that it's released in 2015 because of weird things. Sure. So I guess maybe it comes the the following year. I guess so. Yeah. I can't remember when Insidious Chapter Three came out. I love Leigh Whannell. I just can't remember that movie really, outside of being a prequel to all of them. What about the Boy Next Door, the J Lo joint? Oh, that's what that was. See, I kept thinking the Spy Next Door, and I'm like, I kept placing this movie in 2010. I was like, oh, this is the Jackie Chan vehicle. They're they're considering that a thriller. <laughs> we'll tackle that one further down the road on Spy Hearts. Uh, all I kept thinking was like, Gone Girl came out in 2014, but I guess you know the 2015 thing. Sure. Um, I had one final point about Taken 3 that I want to bring up. And this movie is like shot for a PG-13, right? Like it, it's pretty clear this is a PG-13 movie. But there's a point where uh, Doug Ray Scott says, you were screwing my wife. And it's very clear his mouth is not saying the word screwing. And I'm like, why would they film that take of him saying that? Dub it for a rating. Like, why wouldn't they just have him saying the word screwing? They would know the ratings board. You want to know my bet? I bet that they thought that could be their one fuck. And but you can't use it. Like, they, they should know you can't use the F word. This is for people listening. Yeah, you can't use it in a sexual con context in a movie and get a PG-13. It has to be like, what the blank? You know, like, it has to be that sort of usage. You can't say. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking. I, I honestly think so much of this bogs down to... Oliver Megaton is just not a, he's not interested in making a Taken 3. He was, you look at Taken 2 and oddly enough, there might be more craft on, there is more craft on display. What am I saying? Might be. There is like a sense of like, maybe I have something to prove here. With Taken 3, they're not proving anything, but why there should never be another Taken movie. Well, and just the fact he said what drew him in was the Forrest Whitaker character and the emotion. So clearly like it wasn't, let's do another Liam Neeson action movie. It was like, I, I, I guess I like The Fugitive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would not be shocked if the actual logline was, okay, no, 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 Liam, Liam, calm down. Watch The Fugitive and tell me if you want to star in that. Mm. Don't watch U.S. Marshals. <laughs> I like U.S. Marshals. I, I will take U.S. It's Marshals okay. over okay. all the Taken sequels. Yeah, oh, 100%. Well, I, I think we've uh, maybe talked this film to a early grave but um it's knockless time gents is taken three the first taken film to take our breath away nathan you're our guest what's your vote so it's on my knock list in the sense that it is uh on the same level on my knock list i'm talking about like movies of the same quality as the knock around guys starring vin diesel that's, uh, I think Taken right. 3 is on that list, but no, uh, it does not go in my knock list. Uh, this movie should be disavowed uh, completely. There, there's, this is like a, a why bother movie. There's, there's nothing to recommend it for. Like, even if you're a big fan of Liam Neeson, there's a million other movies with Liam Neeson. If you're a big fan of Forrest Whitaker, there's a million other movies with Forrest Whitaker. I mean, Forrest Whitaker, in terms of weird performances, you're better off just watching Rogue One again. Yeah. That that one still baffles me, but can? Yeah, it's a no for me. Uh, I I might like this one a tiny bit more than two, but it's like so hard to distinguish for me. Like I just look at these Taken sequels as just kind of bad movies that really don't engage me very much. So like, you know, when it comes to this one, 
I'm going to have to channel, you know, we've been doing impressions of Liam Neeson throughout this uh, episode, but this movie is trying to rip off The Fugitive. And to quote Harrison Ford, Taken 3, why did it have to be Taken 3? There you have it. <laughs> There's Cam's accents again, guys. Yeah, it's I back. thought Harrison Ford just joined <laughs> onto the call. I don't have my window fully maximized, so I, I was honestly shocked. Uh Thanks, thanks. I'm happy to be here today. Yeah, it, once again, thanks, guys, for having me on this one. <laughs> well, we haven't had my vote yet, so I guess uh, I, I guess it doesn't no, matter. No, so no, no. Right. Who cares? Give it up there. I'm sure no, no, we're going to get a hot take. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I, this film has so, much, so many good things going for it. You think about Forrest Whitaker. The fact that they've changed the, the the general premise of a Taken film. They've tried to reinvent a Taken film on what it could be. That on paper sounds great. And then you watch the film and you get very confused and it meanders around. The plot doesn't want to go anywhere. And yet it's like jittering around, cutting every couple of seconds. You feel like you're about to start you know, hallucinating. And I'm left with just this mess. So, I mean, it's a no for the Knocklist, clearly. But... I do have a follow-up question, but I guess that means it's not making a knock list. No Taken film is joining the knock list by the sounds of it. Now, Nathan just brought something up, Cam. Is it worth considering? Well, what do you think, Scott? Mm. Well, where do you come down See, I don't... Uh, in comparison to Taken 2? Taken 2 made the disavowed list. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I think this is slightly better than 2 because at least it tries to do something different. Mm-hmm. But then its delivery is maybe a bit worse than Taken 2. And it's longer. So it's almost like it's... And it's longer. And so it's almost like it's on par. I don't know. I I would really have trouble trying to put these in order. I think Taken 2 weirdly has more of something to say or some nuance, or at least is trying to find an angle on Taken, even though it's not successful. I think that this movie's just straight bad, guys. Like, I, I put it way lower on my list watching the two of them literally back to back it was staggering and the fact that it's an it's nearly two hours on the bubble and it's not like it's got 10 to 20 minutes of credits it's like you know an hour and 53 minutes minus the credits like it's it i i can't see any world where i prefer taken two to this but i just don't prefer either film I may watch the first one again if I'm looking for an actioner where Liam Neeson passes away and I want to go through some of his more engaged performances, you know? Not that he's always not engaged. Nathan, would you put Taken 3 on the disavowed list? Oh, I didn't even know you guys had a disavowed list. I made a joke. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow, that, that worked we, out well. We both... Uh... <laughs> We both do spy podcasts. The, the phrase disavowed uh, it tends to come up a lot more in mine than your guys's outside of the disavowed list. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's certainly on the disavowed list. I'll never watch this movie again. I think that's the epitome of disavowed. Like, it, unless it's like a movie that, that affects you so much that you might not watch it again. There's not many that have made the disavowed list. We're talking like Men in Black 2, Men in Black International, One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing... Uh, Remo Williams. The, no, Remo you know. Williams didn't make it on, but the uh, Harry Palmer TV movies did, and Taken mm-hmm. Two. I think that's it, though. Not many movies. Okay. I think both movies belong in the disavowed list. Like you're looking for what element? Like you could maybe make a case for 
taken to at least having spycraft, you know, to some extent, no matter how moronic it is. This movie has nothing. Like, I've literally parsed nothing from this movie. Well, okay, so you're rallying for it to be disavowed. Cam, like, yes or no, should this be disavowed? I'll tell you my biggest struggle is actually, I think I would prefer to watch if forced. I don't know what kind of sadist would do this to me, but would force me to choose between this or Men in Black International to watch again. I would watch Men in Black International again over this. Wow. So I'm kind of I'm kind of leaning towards, I I think it has to. Like, I just don't think this is a big enough difference from Taken 2. And if Taken 2 makes the list, and this one... I, I hate what it does to, you know, the Lenora character. I, I don't like what it does to the Maggie Grace character and sidelining her. Like, what does it do better? Like, what is the improvement in terms of the characters? Like, nothing. So, like, what am I what am I going to bat for at the end of the day? I guess that's what I'm struggling with more. So even though I do find this one a little more watchable than two, just because of probably the Forrest Whitaker performance, the Don Harvey work. Like, there's bits and pieces, but it's long kind of goes nowhere the action is incompetent like i can justify saying disavowed the only thing that's worthwhile of this movie is to look at it as a curio of like what went wrong with action in the 2000s and you know like the <laughs> shift from john wick like it it's interesting to look at like the impact of john wick and then like the last breath of the taken franchise mm, yeah but for, I wouldn't hold on to it for that. That's not enough, exactly. Yeah, I. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm talking about the impact that movies had, where it's like not more of this. So it should certainly be in the disavowed list, in my opinion. Having heard both your opinions on this, I'm gonna make a judgment because I I think with disavowed, it has to be me and Cam has to sign off on it because it's a it's a damning indictment on any film if we disavow it. So it has to be a, a double yes. I think this yogurt pot has gone off, and I'm going to put it back in the fridge. <laughs> it is disgusting, and I will not drink it now. Yeah, so uh, there you have I'm it. Gonna, I'm going to disavow it. It, it, it. It's it's not great, unfortunately, guys. I, I couldn't recommend anyone watch this Okay, at all. And we are like wrapping up the Taken franchise, so I mean, rankings, I'm guessing, Nathan, you're one, two, three. Yeah, hardly enough, yeah. Yeah, I I think probably one, and then a few spaces in three and two. Well, if we're talking about spaces, put eight between two and... <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, that's the thing. Is like, for me, the two and three do not even belong in the same ballpark as the first one. But I think I would probably give a slight edge to the third one, but not by much. I think for me, it's one, then my imaginary taken four sequel uh which is kind of riffing off the magnificent seven in its own little way and then i'm going to put three by a margin and then Damn. two. yeah but they're, they're like they're like i on a, on a day i could flip two and three i think having watched three i probably have more of a recency bias maybe i would enjoy two if i went back and watched it a tad more I'm not saying that you'd enjoy it if you went back and watched it. There's nothing enjoyable about either of these movies, really. But no. I don't know. There, there was something about Taken 2 that, like, uh, not necessarily that any of it was good. But you, you were like, okay, so they're, like, somewhat trying here. With this one, it's just nothing. And it's quick. Yeah, and it's quick. Uh, it, it, is a, it is a bad movie that is the perfect link. Well, Cam, I think we have a, a special siren to make because 
Taken 3 is officially entering the disavowed list. Oh my god. Sound effects out the ready. <laughs> you guys you guys have uh, really changed this podcast a bit since I, uh, I was last on here. Uh, I'm enjoying the loop. Not for the better. Look, gimmicks. <laughs> We're now in our Taken 3 phase. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, wow, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel, both of guests and choice of film. Uh... <laughs> well, well, wait till you hear what we've got next week. Um, but as you said, you know, Taken 3 is, is, is making a disavowed list. No Taken film has made the knock list. And as such, the dossier on the series is complete and filed as classified. Nathan. Thank you for stepping once again, our first returning guest, into the breach today. It's insane to me. I'm I'm the Oliver Megaton of this uh, of this series because I'm the first person returning for <laughs> more than one. What uh, a title! Yeah, yeah. What a title! Yeah, uh, thank you, guys. Uh, it, it was uh, it was a journey for sure. It, I'm glad I had the catharsis of this recording to look forward to after those last two movies, and I'm glad i revisited the first one because it feels like a movie that has been notched down maybe too many points in my head since it first was released because of the sequels and the nature of uh action films now absolutely but like uh, we haven't really caught up on it but uh, yeah what is mission Impossible up to at the moment what are you up to at the moment tell the listeners at home so hopefully by this point we we have like started season two in big swing uh at just a mark when we're recording this, because I feel like it it's good for me to say that this is sort of up in the air. We're we're just kind of trying to get our schedules together to start up season two, trying to get some interviews locked down so we have more to throw on the plate. But we've got an entire season of episodes of television that I'm assuming most people who have listened to this have not listened to or have not uh watched every episode of mission impossible season one but we did it for you and we even have like a final ranking thing so if you want to just listen through and decide where you want to start and listen to us you can find us on itunes spreaker and then uh we also we're on spotify all all your basic stuff uh you can find us on twitter at impotable uh you can find us on instagram and then you can find me on my personal at nathan flynn on twitter i have been uh very strange with my movie watching habits as of lately i recently watched all of the twilight films not for any real reason <laughs> uh it's just kind of weird that we've uh we're, we're still in the middle of this pandemic right now so i'm getting to the whole like oh things were getting better oh no texas is in stage five right now sort of mentality so you can see a ton of me tweeting about that you're watching um, Twilight movies. Scott and I are covering Charlie's Angels. We're all about Kristen Stewart right now. She's the one who's going to carry us through this pandemic. Case two rules. I mean, underwater fucking. Mm-hmm. Oh, that movie honks. Yeah. Um. Well, yeah. Nathan, again, thank you for, for joining us today. Now, we'll have links to your show, all your social medias in the show notes. But um, we love you. You're our hashtag spy bro. You know. Love you guys, You guys too. are the best. We recommend Mission Impossible. Yeah, we recommend Mission Impossible to everyone. We can. Even if you don't like Mission Impossible, give them a listen anyway. Yeah, I mean, there are episodes where all the IMF have to eat LSD sugar cubes. Uh, and that's just the first season. We have one upcoming episode uh well we got one where they dress up like uh arab people with uh 
not well-aged brown face and use cryogenically frozen bats. Oh, and that's boy. one episode. And then we have one where they convince an ex-Nazi that he's in a dream Inception style and that Adolf Hitler keeps killing his long-lost wife. Martin Landau dresses up as Adolf Hitler. Wow. Sign me up. Jeez. I, I, you know, I keep saying I need to start Man from Uncle, but I might need to uh, switch over to Mission Impossible. They're both pretty good. So... Well, Nathan, thank you once again for joining us. Cam, what do we have up next week? We are tackling the World War II espionage thriller The Eagle Has Landed from 1976, starring Michael Caine. Our first Michael Caine since we wrapped up Harry Palmer. Very excited to tackle this one. Um, Saw it back in the day, and it'll be really interesting to revisit. Yeah, I'm looking to see some Michael Caine without the uh, Harry Palmer glasses on. And you know, without the Dutch angles, so hopefully it's an improvement. Have I? I've done my Michael Caine impression for you guys, right? I think I even did it in this episode. Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, just yeah, yeah, just just a casual like. Uh, I mean, if anybody's seen the trip, they have a Michael Caine adjacent impression. But I just rewatched The Dark Knight Rises. What if I told you I had a letter explaining everything that you just told me? To spare you, I've burned that letter. <laughs> there you it's go. A, a pretty good Michael Caine impression, actually, to be fair. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. It's literally, I'll have people ask me whether or not I can do an English accent. And I'm like, I can do a Michael Caine accent. That's as best as you can get. And then they're like, well, can you parse that down? I'm like, I don't even know how I would start. How do you walk back, Michael, from being Caine? No idea. Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch The Eagle Has Landed and join us next week. We are, of course, a proud member of Podbreed and Quite The Thing Podcast Media Network. You can find out more about them on their respective websites. And don't forget to follow us discreetly at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, I knew from the beginning... It was the bagels. They were warm. I mean, I had to ask myself, what kind of a guy goes out for warm bagels and comes back and commits murder?